0: The teaching this week comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, it's a joy to be with you like this this morning. We are continuing this morning our series through the book of 1 Peter. And while this isn't my first sermon at Sojourn Heights, this is my first sermon as one of your pastors. And so it's a joy uh, to be preaching God's word for us this morning. The world we live in is divided in nearly every way. We're divided culturally racially, politically, uh, relationally, socially. As a balancing statement though, it's important to know that the division that we're experiencing right now is nothing new. It's nothing new in the United States, and it's nothing new in the context of world history. Humanity and human relationships are and have, have ever been since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, characterized by conflict and division. The question that Peter brings us to today in our passage for this morning is this what is God doing about it with a world that is divided in nearly every way both between communities and even among communities God's primary work in the world is that of building a redemptive community his temple if you remember from a few weeks ago being built uh, by living stones brothers and sisters in a family the family of God Uh, being built up into a spiritual house that is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is what God is doing in the world. And Peter has been describing this kind of community in his letter. And we've seen that this community is to look a particular kind of way. And that is what our passage continues to discuss today. And so let's jump in. Verse 8, Peter says, finally, all of you. Peter's been talking to different groups within the church throughout this section of his letter, and now he turns... Uh, to give some concluding thoughts in this section of practical uh, practical considerations. He turns to the whole church and he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So, what is this redemptive community supposed to look like? Peter gives us five characteristics here in verse eight. They're to have unity of mind. Some other translations use the word harmony. Uh, Peter's telling to be telling them to be harmonious rather than discordant. When you have a group of musicians on stage and they're working together to complement one another and support one another, the result is beautiful harmony. If you have that same group of musicians competing with one another and trying to work against one another to get the spotlight, then you have discord, you have disunity. Peter then goes on to give character traits that must be pursued in order to have unity. He goes on to say they are to have sympathy. Sympathy is simply feeling with another person or sharing feelings among a group. In other words, sympathy is more than listening to one another, but truly feeling for and understanding one another. Without sympathy, there's no real unity. This is why in reconciliation conversations, storytelling is so important listening to one another and hearing the background stories of others gives you important context that helps you to better understand their position and begin to grapple with the feelings that they're experiencing but peter doesn't stop at sympathy if you're following along with me i'll come back to brotherly love in just a moment next he says you must have a tender heart it's one thing to have a shared understanding with someone which is good but it's another to be moved by that person's suffering or struggle another word for tender-heartedness is compassion And while this isn't a perfect analogy, if sympathy is in the head, then compassion is in the heart. I love that the ESV uses the term tender heart because it's so practical. What happens when you're tender? When you have a tender spot and you bump something, something touches it, you you react, you're moved to action. The opposite of tender heartedness, of course, is hard heartedness. When you're hardened or calloused, you're not moved when something touches you. You're aloof to the suffering of others. This must not be so for you, Peter says. You must have a tender heart. And to make an important observation, Peter doesn't qualify these things. There's no if statement. He tells his readers instead to be sympathetic, uh, sympathetic and compassionate, period. And this is, I think, particularly important for us right now. If someone is suffering, we should pursue them and engage them with sympathy and compassion, period. You might not agree with their reasoning for feeling the way that they feel, but to be a church that only sympathizes with and, and has compassion for people whose offense or hurt we agree with is like being a hospital that only receives patients who's, uh, uh, who are not at fault in their injuries. You were doing what uh, when you got hurt? Sorry, we're not going to provide you care. Uh, oh, you did that to yourself? Sorry, you got to go somewhere else. No, this new kind of community that Jesus died to form And that Peter is writing about will change the world as a community marked by unqualified, gracious compassion, and especially for one another in the church. And this is big. Perhaps this is why Peter goes on uh, and points to the necessity of humility. He finishes verse 8 by saying, have a humble mind. Humility, true humility, is counting others more significant than yourself. In other words, it goes past equality in the other direction. not only do you not see yourself as better than others but you don't even see yourself as equal to others you see others as more significant than you now this requires nuance of course because we know from elsewhere in the bible that every human being is equal in dignity and position before god holding the bible's teaching on humility in tension with the bible's teaching on equality should help us protect ourselves and one another from self-loathing shame unhelpful self-flagellation, self-punishment, but we can't ignore what the Bible teaches about humility. In in Philippians 2, the apostle Paul points to Jesus as the model for humility. He says the definition, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, and then he goes on and points out uh, where this humility comes from. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality a thing to be grasped, excuse me, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. Humility involves knowing that you are equal to one another in truth, but setting aside that station and emptying yourself for the sake of others. In Romans 12, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, the contest is not how much you can get in this community, but it's how much you can give to others in this community. Picture a marriage. If the husband is looking out for his own honor, and the wife is looking out for her own honor, then they will both likely start feeling neglected and mistreated by one another. If, however, the husband is looking out for his wife's honor and the wife is looking out for her husband's honor and, and, and they're both looking to outdo one another in showing each other honor rather than themselves, that sounds like a delightful relationship to witness, a delightful relationship to be a part of, a community in pursuit of humility looking out for one another rather than for themselves is a delightful community to be a part of. I said I'd come back to brotherly love. You might be familiar with the term chiasm. It's used often in the Bible. It's a literary structure that uses kind of parallel statements to create emphasis. Like the first thing will be parallel to the last thing, the second thing, the second to last thing, and then it'll it'll emphasize something. And that's what happens in these five characteristics. You have, Peter says, um, first he talks about unity, humility is the last thing. Then he says, sympathy, compassion. Those are parallel, and then he finishes. And and then in the middle there is brotherly love. Love is essential. And it is really to be the leading characteristic of Christian community. One evidence of genuine Christian faith is warm, familial love for others in the Christian community as brothers and sisters. Why is this so important? As Jesus says in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Familial love is central to how other people will come to know God through the Christian community. So Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. As we think about this kind of community and what it would seem like in the middle of a world that is marked by division and conflict and otherwise not the list of things that we went through, you know what it would look like? It would be surprising. In fact, if I'm honest, it would seem a little bit fake. If you put me outside the church, you know what I'd expect? I'd expect the church to be just like the rest of us. Sure they'd have fun sometimes, sure they'd do a bunch of stuff together, but I'd, be, I'd expect them to argue and fight and backbite and gossip and troll one another on social media, slander one another, just like the rest of us. And if I see that, right, as an outsider, then I would be totally unsurprised. Uh, by that because, of course, they're just like the rest of us. But then I'd also very quickly thereafter conclude, well, there's no reason for their God or Jesus or the other stuff that they talk about because it's not changing their lives at all. In fact, I don't have to imagine that. I remember as a teenager growing up in a non-Christian home thinking that about Christians. but if you put me on the outside looking in, and I see instead a bunch of people talking about how much they love one another, how much they share with one another, how much they are, are slow to speak uh, and quick to listen, especially when someone has a, has a different perspective, I'd probably think it's fake. That's, in fact, that's what I thought about the church that my uh, high school girlfriend brought me to uh, for a few years when I was in high school. Um, there were a bunch of nice people, but in the back of my mind the whole time I thought, there's no way this can be true. They're putting on their Sunday best. they're smiling at each other, but they can't possibly actually feel this way about each other. And according to Peter, it's not surprising that as an outsider, I thought this of the church. Listen to verse 9. Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. There's a particular posture that Peter expects those outside the church to have towards those inside the church. And that posture is Revulsion. It would be nice if this countercultural way of living in the world as a unified, loving community would be received well, but so often it's not. I remember thinking as a young Christian, I remember reading the, the Gospels for the first time, the, 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 the books of the Bible that tell the story of the life of Jesus, and I remember thinking, man, Jesus seems like a really great guy, right? He was doing all kinds of great things. He was healing people. He was feeding hungry people. He was casting out demons. He was chasing outsiders and welcoming them to the table with them. He seemed like a really great guy you'd think that people would have appreciated him and would have loved him, but they didn't. They killed him. Peter writes to his followers and says, if you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer too. The world will reject you. You will be reviled, and on account of that, you will suffer. The question is, what do you do when that happens? Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And this is where the rubber meets the road, I think, friends. In my mind, this is one of the hardest teachings in the Bible uh, in a practical sense. By that I mean this is one of the things that when we read it, our flesh fights hardest against. In Peter's words, while they're not a direct quote, they come directly from Jesus' own teaching. Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness' sake, but I tell you, love your enemies. Bless your enemies. And listen to what Jesus adds in Luke chapter 6. He goes on to say, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. What Jesus is saying is that it's not strange to the world when you are kind to people who are respectful towards you. It's not strange to the world if you repay violence with violence, if you respond to disrespect with vengeance. That's only fair. What is surprising is when you are mistreated and you respond with blessing instead of vengeance. How could you let them do that to you? Are you going to let her get away with that? I remember as a freshman in college, uh, finding myself in relationship with a group of guys who were Christians, um, and I don't like to think of myself when I was an, uh, a, not, a, not a Christian. I was an atheist. I, didn't, I, was, I knew that I didn't believe in God. But I don't like to think of myself as an antagonistic, antagonistic atheist. But I did have the questions that I loved asking Christians that would confuse them, that would annoy them, that would make them defensive, that would make them frustrated, that would shut, really would just shut them down. Um, but I remember being in the context of this group of guys in college, and I brought all those questions with me. And you know what they did? Is for the first time in my life. This is a group of Christians who who thanked me for my questions. And then then at the end of that first night, I'll never forget, at the end of that first night, they prayed for me. And they thanked God for my questions. And they asked God to bless me. (laughs) Um, They didn't ask God to, to fix me. They asked God to bless me. I'm so thankful that God, at that point in my life, brought me into context with a group of people who lived this teaching out to me and for me. Just a few months later, I was saved. I came to know the Lord in the context of that community. This is the kind of people we're invited to be. This is the kind of people Peter is calling us to be. This is what redemptive community looks like in a divided world. I just mentioned how you'd think that those outside the church might think this would sound good, but they often don't. But what about those inside the church? right? This sounds good to, the, to us who are inside the church, right? Wouldn't the kind of community that Peter is describing sound like something worth pursuing to us? Yes, absolutely. But the thing is that even though it sounds better than the alternative, we still struggle to do it. Even though we've had this teaching from Peter, those words from Jesus for 2,000 years, we as Christians still struggle with all of these things. And the question is why? And that's because becoming and living as a redemptive community requires more than information. There's more going on here than mere ignorance. In fact, I think that ignorance is not the problem at all, but something deeper than the mind. Follow me for just a moment. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then he goes on to talk about, he gives very practical examples of what he means. In the section on governments, which we heard about a few weeks ago, he points to the issue of fear, telling them to fear God rather than man. In the section on servants, he points to the issue of trust, telling them to imitate Jesus and entrusting themselves to him who judges justly. In the section directed towards wives, he points them to the issue of hope, pointing them to those whose hope was in God rather than in their appearance or in their current circumstance. In each of these sections, Peter knows that mere instruction is not going to change the lives and character of his readers. He knows that there's more at play. He knows that there's a war going on within their very souls. And so rather than pointing simply to their minds, he points to deep within their souls. He points to fear, trust, hope. And here in our passage where he encourages believers to to live like this kind of community and says, you will suffer on account of this kind of life, do you see what he points to at the soul level, the thing that so often thwarts our efforts at living like this? Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. When we face suffering, we tend to have two related but different concerns. First, deep in our hearts, we are tempted by fear that if we enter with gentleness, then we will be crushed. Second, deep in our hearts, we're tempted to be troubled by the thought that if we leave evil unaddressed, or if we lose an argument or don't get our way, then we won't win for Jesus, to put it most optimistically. And I think what makes it so difficult is that these things, friends, are true. Take humility, for example. Humility is always risky. When you choose the way of humility, whether with a Christian or a non-Christian, choosing to count someone as more significant. Than yourself, you run the risk of, grasp, of them grasping that higher status, right, and then clobbering you with it. I know this well. I'm not a perfectly humble man. One of the things that makes humility hardest for me is that some of the most painful moments in my life, even in my pastoral ministry, have been moments, in, particularly in conflict, where I've sought to humble myself before someone, and they have chosen to take that opportunity to just undress me with their words. The cry of my flesh is, Paul, don't, don't ever do that again. It's traumatic, it's painful, and it's tempting to let the fear of being crushed like that again steer me towards self-preservation, towards hard-heartedness, toward building walls to keep people away and hold my ground. But Peter says, have no fear of them. The second thing is, do not be troubled. The thought of responding to evil with blessing and gentleness is particularly troubling for us. When we experience injustice or mistreatment, or if we hear false accusations against us or even against God, our flesh cries out, I can't let this go on. I'm an agent of God in the world. I must pursue justice, right? Otherwise, this person's just going to keep on going and doing this. That's a troubling thought. But Peter says, do not be troubled by what is happening. I think I need to make an important clarification here. There are two kinds of suffering that Peter refers to in this passage. On the one hand, you have suffering in verse 17, suffering on account of your own foolishness, suffering for doing evil. While going to jail for, for a crime is suffering, and it might come from the Lord's loving discipline for you and in order to, to draw you to repentance, that's not what Peter's talking about here, not the suffering for doing evil. On the other hand, there's, what he is talking about is the suffering that, that, that you suffer for righteousness' sake as we're told about in verse 14, suffering on account of your good works and your faithfulness to God and what he's called you to. In the face of this suffering, Peter's instructions are to turn your eyes toward God. Verse nine, on the contrary, bless for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 12 to quote from Psalm 34 uh, in the Old Testament, in part to show uh, that this has been God's desire for his people all along. there are to be peacemaker, to seek the good and to seek peace. Uh, God's people are to be agents of reconciliation and therefore agents of de-escalation. So those are the two kinds of suffering that we're told about. There is a third kind of suffering that I, that I feel like I need to mention here. Uh, suffering on account of the sins of others, such as being the victim of collateral damage in a war or suffering a more personal trauma at the hands of a perpetrator. And while that's addressed elsewhere in the Bible, Peter doesn't address that specifically here. And I'm gonna leave a full address of that for another sermon except to say this, if you're in a circumstance like that, where you're suffering on account of the sin of another person or, or, or other people, please know that while the lines aren't perfectly clear here, chances are that is not suffering for righteousness sake. Know that you've got a family here at Sojourn that wants to seek freedom, healing, and justice for your sake. If this is you right now, please reach out to your parish leader or feel free to go to our web. You can reach out to any of the staff members. You can reach out to me, anyone on staff. You can go to our website on the About Us page and click any of our pictures, and that'll that'll let you send us an email. Um, I thought that was an important clarification to make. But coming back to our passage, in the face of suffering on account of following Jesus, Peter says, have no fear of those who persecute you, nor be troubled at leaving vengeance or restitution for another day. The problem is this runs against the grain of our flesh. It creates a war within us. We want to win our battles. We want the victory. We need to exact justice. Think about Peter for a moment. I think it would be helpful to think about the author of this letter, the Apostle Peter. Peter is the impetuous disciple. He's impulsive. He's eager to get Jesus in front of a crowd during Jesus's ministry. He's quick to speak, quick to violence. When Jesus was arrested, Peter was the one who picked up a sword and swung it at the soldier who was arresting Jesus and cut off his ear. To which Jesus responded, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then, and then Jesus healed the soldier who was coming to arrest him. This is who Peter was, though. Jesus was constantly calling him off, constantly pulling him back. So the fact that Peter is the one who is now writing these words to us about humility and gentleness, about not being troubled in the face of suffering at the hands of others, is a big deal. What happened to Peter? What happened that turned his soul from, from fearfulness and being troubled to a, to a soul that is gentle and at peace? He watched Jesus. He followed Jesus. He watched him suffer. He watched him die. And he saw him rise from the dead. G- P- Peter is not some armchair theologian. He's he tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, that he's an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. This is someone who was in the trenches with Jesus. He was with Jesus for years. He was corrected by Jesus many times. Just a few years after he writes this letter, Peter is killed on account of his faith, martyred, hung on a cross. But as the story goes, he was he asked uh, upon his crucifixion, he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't see himself worthy of being crucified in the same manner as the Lord Jesus. Peter saw the sufferings of Christ. He saw the victory of Christ's resurrection, then finally, when the Holy Spirit was poured into his heart in the hearts of those present and gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, the very breath of God was breathed into the depths of his soul, bringing him to new life. And do you remember, Peter was the the one who stood up and preached the very first spirit-filled sermon uh, on the day of Pentecost. And do you remember what the point of that sermon was, what the main idea of that sermon was? Jesus Christ has secured victory over all things through suffering. One of my favorite Christian songs right now is a modern hymn called Man of Sorrows. The, the chorus goes, Oh, that rugged cross my salvation, uh, where your love poured out over me. There's this line, I think it's the first line of the second verse that says this. Silent as he stood accused, be- beaten, mocked, and scorned. Here's what gets me. Here's the Son of God, very God of very God himself, Jesus who could have saved himself. See, he could have called down the whole host of heaven to to rain down judgment on those who were persecuting him, who were causing him to suffer, who were hanging him on a cross. But he didn't. He was silent as he stood accused. And he remained silent. Except to say, while he was hanging on the cross, about to die, Father, forgive them. Father, bless them, for they know not what they do. Instead of coming with power and vengeance to crush the world, he came in weakness, full of compassion and humility and gentleness, and on account of that was crushed himself. He was crushed for you. He was crushed for me. He was crushed for the penalty of our sin. And it was also crushed to demonstrate that for us, too, the path is the same. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Verse 14, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Look to Jesus, friends, brothers, sisters. Look to Jesus who showed you the way to overcome evil with viol- and violence. Excuse me, the way to overcome evil and violence and division in sin is the way of gentleness and respect. Blessing rather than cursing those who mistreat you. Praying for rather than reviling your enemies in return. To quote the famous philosopher Willie Nelson, you've got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Friends, our flesh, our world has no grid for when to fold them. The way of Jesus teaches us that the game that the world is trying to get you to play is not the way to life. It's not the way to victory. Put away your sword, Peter, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You can accumulate all of the chips on your table, but at the end of your life, they will amount to nothing because this broken world cannot hold your hope. It is a shabby reward. Your hope instead should be on the inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven, waiting the blessing that comes on account of following Jesus, the way of Jesus rather than the way of the world. To quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. And there's one more thing that I want us to see this morning. Look with me at verse 15. Peter has described this kind of community that we ought to be. We've been pointed to Jesus as the perfect example of this kind of life and reminded that it's by the Holy Spirit alone that our lives can be transformed, our hearts can be transformed into this kind of person. And then Peter gives us this final instruction. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Being the kind of people who live as this redemptive presence in the world doesn't just happen. It takes preparation. Always be prepared to give an answer when asked about your hope. Peter's been talking, uh, it's important to clarify what Peter's talking about here, right? He's been talking about love and community and pursuing the good. Then he says, be prepared to make a defense, not for the gospel, but be be prepared to make a defense to anyone who should ask about your hope. A lot of Christians I know uh, find this verse very stressful. And I'm convinced it's for no reason. I do not think that this is saying that you need to be prepared to walk people through the evidentiary claims for the existence of God. I do not think this is uh, Peter telling us to be prepared to go through some well-crafted gospel presentation and ask uh, whoever you're with to, 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 if they want to profess faith in Jesus at the end of it. All right? don't, don't hear me disparage those things by any means. But do hear me say that that is not what Peter is talking about here Instead, to give a summary of the whole section, Peter is saying at some point you're going to be asked about your hope. So live your life well, honoring Christ the Lord in your hearts as holy, pursuing unity and love through humility and compassion so that when you suffer, uh, so that when you suffer, so that when you're asked these questions, your reflex isn't to be troubled or fearful, but instead to be gentle and respectful, demonstrating your trust in Christ the Lord who has already won the victory so that you don't have to. The wording here points not so much to the information in your brain, but to the life you live and the posture of your heart. How, when you are downtrodden, are you so filled with hope and joy? Why don't you pick up a sword and fight? Or perhaps this question could be asked of you more forcefully or more antagonistically. Why are you letting that person take advantage of you? Uh, Why don't you stick up for yourself? These are the kinds of questions that Peter is talking about here. And so often the best answers for these questions are not perfectly crafted arguments but instead telling the story, simply telling the story of God and his work in your life. What has God done for you? Your testimony is so powerful. If you uh, were to get to work early one morning, picture this. I'm borrowing this illustration from a, a friend who's a pastor. <clears throat> if you were to get to work early one morning and one of your coworker comes in, co-workers comes in and asks you if the boss is here, you have a couple of options. You could say, you know, I see the light under his door, so I'm pretty sure he's here, or uh, I heard, I think as I was walking by, I think I heard him talking on the phone. I'm pretty sure he's in there. Or I asked his secretary and she said he has a meeting right now and so he's probably here. You could say things like that. Or, or when your coworker asks you if your boss is there, you could say, Yeah, he is. I was just with him. You see, being prepared for these kinds of questions looks a lot more like living as a part of a community in pursuit of God with a deep heart-level engagement with God. I'll give three things that I think this passage is inviting us to do. First, lean into your church community, especially in times of conflict and division, pursuing these characteristics that Peter describes. These are not binary realities. These are not yes or no things. They are characteristics that are instead grown in over the course of your life. Don't be discouraged when you fail, but be encouraged as you grow. Practice gentleness and respect, especially when others are not being gentle and respectful towards you. Not only that, but secondly, cultivate real relationships with people outside the church. Start with your literal neighbors or with your coworkers or with your family. Perhaps focus on those people in those groups who are especially hard for you to get along with. Preparedness as Peter is talking about, is not only being aware of the things of faith and the things of God, but also being thoughtfully, present in and th- being thoughtfully present in and aware of the world in which you live. Or else you risk being a tone-deaf Christian presence, which, if I'm being honest, the world already has plenty of. You've got to learn the language, feel the feelings, gain compassion for the world around you. This is what Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 9, we're told that when Jesus saw the crowds that were around him, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion comes through sympathy. And like I said a moment ago, often the best way to cultivate symp- uh, sympathy is to listen to the stories of others. Finally, Peter says, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Here's what I wanna say. While this must go hand in hand with life in community, it doesn't happen without intentionality. Cultivate an intimate relationship with God. This is hard work, as the pastor and theologian uh, John Stott once said, the thing I know will give me the deepest joy, namely to be alone and unhurried in the presence of God, aware of his presence, my heart open to worship him, is often the thing I least want to do. It's hard work, but it is so worth it. I look forward to to teaching uh, or to hosting another Sojourn Academy class on prayer soon. For now, one of the best tips that I can give you as you cultivate a life of prayer is to practice gratefulness. In Ephesians 5, I believe, the Apostle Paul gives this kind of unqualified whammy. He says, give thanks always in every circumstance. When was the last time you sat down and listed through through a dozen things that God has done for you that you're thankful for? When was the last time you sat and gave God thanks for everything that is going on in your life right now? Is your tone in prayer or in conversation with the people in your life one of grievance or one of gratefulness? Practice thanksgiving. Jesus once described the coming and growth of the kingdom of God like leaven, which when put into bread permeates through and leavens the whole lump. Sourdough bread is having kind of a heyday right now. Lindsay, my wife, has been making sourdough bread for several months and she's had the opportunity to give sourdough starter which is basically the leaven of sourdough bread to uh, several friends of ours and I'll never forget the first friend who came over Uh, he said can I come pick it up on Friday so he came to pick up this sourdough starter and he said I'm having people over tonight how do I do this and we kind of laughed (laughs) uh, because you have to let it work for a couple of days it's a slow process of, of, of baking sourdough bread So often we think of things as being instant. We want them to be instant, but that's not how Jesus describes the kingdom of God. What I like about that leaven image is that it's gradual. But the other part that I like is that it's inevitable. Once the leaven is in a lump of dough, there's no stopping it. It's gradual, but it is unstoppable. It's like a glacier coming up to your house if you live in a place where glaciers are. Um, It might only move a foot or two a day, but that thing is coming, and it's not stopping. Friends, the growth of the kingdom of heaven in our world, in our church, in your own life is gradual. It is slow, but it is inevitable. And you know the good news? The pressure is not on you. You don't have to be right. You don't have to win in the eyes of the world. Peter shows us a better way, the way of righteousness, which is the way of Jesus, the way of gentleness and respect, verse 15, the way of sympathy, compassion, humility, harmony, and love, verse eight. At times it will be humiliating, but then as Jesus shows us, the paradox of the kingdom of heaven is that humiliation is the only way to exaltation. For those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, this is inevitable. Becoming this kind of community will happen as we devote ourselves to it over time. The leaven is in the loaf. Nobody can remove it. Lean in asking for God's help and be patient in trusting the results and the timing to him, knowing that victory is sure, it's already secure, and he's with you. If you're listening, though, and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus, the lump of flour has yet to be leavened, but hear the gentle invitation and welcome of Jesus. He is the good friend with the sourdough starter who is holding it out for you right now, waiting to give it to you so that you can start baking bread. And the bread we're baking together, brothers and sisters, is a redeemed world full of redeemed people characterized by love and peace and hope in God who loves us. This is the solution to a divided society. Not uh, something big and spectacular, not your next status on social media, not the next presidential election, but a transformed community of men, women, and children whose lives have been transformed by the grace of Jesus, who are being continually transformed by the grace of Jesus, who are living transformationally in the world around them, living ordinary, hospitable, loving, gentle lives as they follow Jesus. This is the way. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your church, for this, your word. I pray that you would bless us and that you would keep us and that you would make us into this kind of people for your glory, for our good, and for the good of our
0: neighbors. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.